This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Tonight we're going to deal with, I guess what I'd like to title Christian Karma. And it's this idea that is sometimes pushed by preachers that are trying to sell Christianity. The idea that if you will do good things, then good things happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. If you give your life to Jesus, everything gets better. And Ecclesiastes speaks to that. Actually, all of Scripture speaks to that. And it says that that is wrong. And that isn't true about real life, and it's not true about God's expectations. It's not true about a life serving Jesus at all. In fact, often, for those who serve Jesus, they're under spiritual attacks, and life can get harder. Thank God that God is with us in it. This illusion of Christian karma lasts right up until something really challenging happens, and it blows up our paradigm. Maybe there's a car accident, or a diagnosis, or a bad breakup, or a terrible announcement. Something goes that rattles us. And this is the point when people who have been sold on Christian karma for a long time often will question their faith altogether. I've got a deck of cards here. And I don't know, let's see if we can make a good example out of it. A deck of cards, like one of the things about a deck of cards is that it's random, right? I'm not going to be able to shuffle while holding the microphone, but you can take my word for it. It's a pretty well-shuffled deck. Now, what if I said, I'm going to hand out the cards just at random to all of you guys. You can just come pull one from this well-shuffled deck. And if you pull a heart, I'm going to give you a $10 bill. But if you pull a spade you have to make a commitment to turn off your phone for the next 24 hours. As in, you have to use your friend's phone to contact parents. You're going to have to find another alarm clock. You will miss out on whatever's going on in social media. And I just started handing out cards. How many of you would be like, I'm in. The $10 is worth it. Awesome. Good for you guys. But for most of us, that would be like, me. I don't know if the rewards of playing this game are worth the consequences of playing this game. And you know what? It's not even a game. A game implies strategy. This is just blind chance, right? Are you following me with that idea? Now, what's, what's tough is that even though we don't really like the consequences of turning off our phones, but the reward of $10 sounds great, life that we're sort of thrust into against our will has a lot greater consequences than just turn off your phone for 24 hours. What happens on one day could be disastrous. And what happens on another might be like, yeah! And yet this is the life that we live all the time. And this is the life that Solomon's really frustrated with. He puts life on trial and he says, life, why are you like this? And he challenges life with the, with the very questions that we ask. He cross-examines life and he says, what is the point of everything that we work hard for. Why do things play out the way that they do? And he says that all the things that we work for, we we fight for, 
All the times we pull cards from the deck, all that they add up to is hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. And it doesn't mean meaningless, but it means vapor, illusion, smoke, something you can't quite grasp onto, something that's temporary, that's here today and gone tomorrow. Something that you can't put any sort of stability or trust into. And the reason that he's come to this conclusion that life is hevel is because of three things that we can't argue with him about. Three undeniable truths. And the first is that time erases everything. Everything that we are or do or become, 60, 100 years from now will be forgotten. No, no one will remember. Two, death is coming for us all. We will all die. Just like the billions of people that went ahead of us who all died, we will also die. And three, life seems like a blind gamble. It's random. And because of these three things, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, is his declaration. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, God is speaking to us saying, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. See, our vision is limited to this side of eternity, living in a physical realm. And most of the time, what we see is the back of the canvas. And when we're looking at life and, and how strange and chaotic and bizarre it is, we're looking at life as its knots and its tangles and its loose threads. But God sees the side he's been working on the whole time. And we're always going to be limited. We're limited by our sin. We're limited by our spiritual immaturity. We're limited by the fact that we're just not infinite creator God. And sometimes we look at the world and we think, this is a chaotic mess. It's a jumble of random events. How could God be in control beneath it, behind it, above it, and in it? And this is Solomon's struggle. Life seems random. Ecclesiastes. Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Cut your Bible in half. If you're in Psalms or Proverbs, go right just a little bit. Ecclesiastes, we're going to start in chapter 9. Then we'll rewind. We're going to just do a, a flyover of the whole book. Chapter 9, verse 11. Solomon is speaking, and he's talking about this frustration. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, so the person who wins the race is not just the fastest, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Life seems random. And one of the things that he gets frustrated about, rewind Ecclesiastes back to chapter 2, is that sometimes the exact same events happen to those who are wise and to those who are foolish. And this frustrates him a lot. Solomon has spent his life trying to be wise, believing that if he was wise, well, then things were going to work out better for him. Events would fall in line for him. Check it out. Chapter 2, verse 14. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, hevel, and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. 
and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also was striving for the wind. The strength of wisdom doesn't avoid the reality of chance and events. Later in chapter 9, verse 2, he's going to say that not only do the same events happen to both, but sometimes it's backwards. Really good things will happen to bad people, and really bad things will happen to good people. And it doesn't matter if they're strong. It doesn't matter if they're smart. It doesn't matter if they're really religious or spiritual. It doesn't matter if they follow all the rules. Sometimes life events just are inconsistent. And we have libraries worth of self-help books. Do these seven steps, and then you'll be a better friend. Do these six steps, and you'll lose weight. Do these 10 steps, and you'll be more influential. Do these three steps, and you'll be more funny. On and on and on and on. We have all these self-help books. But no matter how many books they write, life doesn't line up with our plans or our formulas. In chapter 7, verse 15, he painfully recognizes that one of the random events of life is death itself. And sometimes the wicked live a long time, and sometimes the righteous die early. Chapter 7, verse 15, he says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. In chapter 8, 12, it says that sometimes the wicked person can do the same wickedness a hundred times, but it never affects him. And we can't even know when we'll die or how we'll die. Just like our key verse, the race is into the swift The battle isn't to the strong or the bread to the wise. The same thing happens to them all. But then in verse 12, it says, of chapter 9, it says, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared, or they die at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. Life seems random. And there's no way to predict the future. In chapter 8, verse 7, it says, For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, he does not know what is to be or who can tell him how it will be. Solomon tells a story about a small town that was besieged by a big army. And there was this poor but wise man. And because of his actions, the town is saved. And yet only a short period of time after, the man is totally forgotten. And his status, his honor is no greater afterwards than it was before. And Solomon's like, this is ridiculous. Time and chance happen to everything, and things can be inconsistent, unpredictable, and not make sense. Shouldn't our actions, our beliefs, and our lifestyles predetermine our lives in some way, for better or worse? And yet, no matter what we do, they seem out of control. This is his frustration. But point two, I want you to read this with me. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter eight. We're gonna go to verse 16. Solomon begins to read between the lines. The Lord starts using his wisdom to see behind 
the embroidery to the other side, just a glimpse of what's going on. 8, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. 9 verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. No matter how wise or how smart, no matter how hard we work or how long we struggle, we're never going to understand life's randomness. But all of these things are in the hands of God. On the other side of this canvas that we're just looking at the back of, there is an artist and he is in complete control. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter three. This is the foundation of the whole book. And we read it a couple weeks ago. We're going to read it again tonight to give some context. Ecclesiastes chapter three. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker of all his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot, so that we, man, cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So God has taken this, this chaos, but from his perspective, this chaos is consistent. It falls into place into seasons and it's cyclical so that they change and they come around again and again. And he has made every one of these seasons Beautiful. And even though we will not understand how it all works, it has been God that's been at work from the beginning to the end. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read chapter 7, verse 13. It says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Meaning that even though as we read through these seasons, this poem, there's some things in here that sound really good and some things that sound really bad. But chapter 7, verse 13 says, consider the work of God. In the day of prosperity, in the day of things that we think are great, be joyful, but remember in the tough things, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. See, life seasons are not a gamble. God has ordained the good and the painful. Even though he hides the future from us, he is in complete control. So here's the question. I want to bring all of this to a head. 
and maybe shine the light back on ourselves a little bit. Maybe tonight the, the Lord will grab us by the shoulders, turn us around and make us kind of face ourselves. All of these things are frustrating Solomon and they frustrate us too. Why is Solomon fighting so hard to understand why the world works? Why does he crave order and fairness and predictability? What is Solomon's goal? It's an attempt to control. If we can take life and figure out the formula, then we can make life have predictable, positive outcomes and avoid the negative ones. If we can study life, if we can get it down to a science, we can be the ones that work things out according to our good. Isn't that true of us too? Let's get a handle on things. Let's work everything out. I'm going to plan my future. I'm going to plan tomorrow. I'm going to get this all knuckled down. Except life seems random. It messes up our ability to control. God, I want your job. I want to handle on life. And yet life frustrates us because we're on vacation and we blow a tire. And because that relationship, that friendship you thought was going great, you suddenly get ghosted. Or maybe you get terrible news from parents. Maybe cancer drives itself into your life unexpectedly. We don't know what's going to happen next. Life seems unpredictable. And yet behind all of this, God is on the other side, making it beautiful, shaping his people. And I don't know about you, but I have big questions too. We're not so satisfied with how things are run down here by the one who's up there running things. And Job felt the same way. And if you haven't sat down to read Job, brace yourself. Is it's not a comfortable story. But Job, as a righteous man, God says he's a righteous man. So this isn't subjective. Loses everything. And Job brings his accusational questions to God and says, God, why do you do things the way you do? Why do you allow suffering for the righteous, good things for the wicked? What's the point of even being born if life is going to be this unpredictable? And Job, in his foolishness, it sounds like he has a backbone, but really it's just foolishness. He actually says this to his friends. In Job 13, verse 3, he says, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. <laughs> I want to speak to the man upstairs. The guy who's on the other side of the canvas, I want to argue my case. I'm not so excited about the way things are going in my life. And then God answers Job. In Job chapter 38, God speaks to him and he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's a strange phrase. It means, who is this that trying to be smart keeps talking foolishness over himself? Yeah, you think you understand things, but you're actually lost in the dark. And then God says this very plainly, dressed for action like a man, Job, I will question you. That's where your blood runs cold and your butt cheeks tighten. When God puts you on the stand, I will question you and you make it known to me. 
And God spends the next few chapters bringing questions to Job that Job has no hope answering. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, are you able to help the birds lay their nests? Job, are you able to catch sea monsters on a hook and decide where they're going to go? Job, where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Did I ask your advice on how I was going to order the world? And Job is speechless. And Job responds in chapter 40, verse 3. Job answers the Lord and says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, and I will proceed no further. And then God says, nope, I'm not done, Job. Let's keep going here. And he says it again. Job, prepare yourself for action. I'm giving you more questions. And God continues to keep challenging him with more and more questions. He answers Job, and he says things like, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you're in the right? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Can you put on majesty and dignity? Can you look down on the proud and defeat him? Can you look on everyone who is proud and bring him low? Can you tread the wicked down to the ground where they stand? And finally, Job is like, he's a puddle before God. And he answers God in chapter 42, verse one through six. He says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's giving God's question back to him. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I'll question you. This is what God said to him. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you with my eyes. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job brings these big questions to God and God goes, hold on, Job. I'm gonna ask you some questions. While you're on your side looking at the knots and tangles, do you realize that the creator, the almighty is on the other side and sees it all and has perfect order for it? We so badly, we want life to be arranged like a formula so we can have God's job. We want to grasp for a little of his sovereignty. But Solomon begins to see that God uses the difficult seasons, the painful seasons, the seasons that we avoid at all costs to chisel us, to shape us, to mold us, to mature us, to strengthen us. In chapter seven, he discusses, he said, it's better to be in a season of mourning than in a season of joy. Why? God's at work. In the times that we feel the most abandoned are the times that the Lord is carrying us. The times that we feel the most pressure is when God has us in the fire because he's shaping us. And the fire, that, the, the times that we feel the most picked at and scraped at is when God is cleaning the dross, cleaning the filth out of the silver. When we surrender our expectations, when we surrender our complaints of how we think life ought to be, then we can finally lay down anxiety and dissatisfaction. We can trade them for contentment in savoring life's seasons for what they are. And this begins with remembering who our creator is. He's infinitely wise. He's just and loving. He's concerned with us, with the good of his people. 
what is good isn't always comfortable, but God is so much more concerned with our holiness than he's concerned with our happiness. And that's worth remembering. When we know the sculptor of mankind, when we know the composer of the changing seasons, when we know the painter of history and the author of salvation, then we can have hope in the randomness, the chaos, the unpredictability of life, knowing that he's the one behind it and he is in control. All right, so what are our responses to the fact that life seems random? It's not gonna change. Life will continue to seem random. It will seem like someone's shuffling the cards and we're pulling and we're hoping for something good. So what are the four responses? I'll give them to you briefly. First, Solomon teaches us to operate in wisdom. Chapter two, verses 13 through 14, he says, wisdom excels foolishness just like light excels darkness. In chapter seven, 11 through 12, he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun. Now, wisdom doesn't guarantee success, but it sets us up for success. And it postured us to be ready for things to change, when they change and how they change. So why walk in wisdom? Because life is unpredictable. Two, don't walk alone. Solomon gives an illustration in chapter four. This is worth turning to. Chapter four, we're gonna go to verse seven. And he has us consider a workaholic. Let's name him Steve. And he has us consider these two other guys that are working together. Uh, Let's just call them Paul and Bob. And later they're gonna include Jerry. And let's look at these guys. Let's see how this plays out. Chapter four, verse seven. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person, so this is Steve, Steve has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his work, all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I working and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one. All right, so here we go. This is Paul and Bob. Paul and Bob working together, they're better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, their work. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Steve's going to be cold. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, as in a mugger comes out, a thief is coming after him. Someone wants to hurt our boy, Paul. Bob's going to be there. Two will withstand him. And ah, Jerry, threefold is not quickly broken. Comparing these, Steve has no one with him. He gains riches, but he's never satisfied. He only wants more. He never stops and enjoys the pleasure of his hard work. And his purpose is only for himself. And what does it say? His lifestyle brings vanity, hevel. But then we've got Paul and Bob over here. And these two, it says they don't just have riches. They have good reward. They have a support system, which is mutually beneficial. They're concerned with the needs of one another. So in a world of unpredictability, companionship is critical. Doing life together is critical. We don't know when we're going to fall. We don't know when there's going to be an external force that comes against us. But even better is having a team, working together, So why don't we walk alone? Because life is unpredictable. So walk in wisdom. Don't walk alone. Three, trust in a sovereign God. Sovereign means that he's ruling, 
That doesn't just mean that, that he's on a throne and he happens to have a crown and he could use his power. To say that God is sovereign means that he is actively ruling, actively using his power. He's on the other side of the embroidery and he's at work now in our lives today. The author's conclusion in chapter 12 discusses a sovereign God. And Jesus tells this great, this great story in Matthew 7. Jesus in Matthew 7 gives a parable about building a house on sand or building a house on a rock. And when the storm comes and slams against the house, which one is going to stand? And Jesus isn't talking about worldly success. He's talking about having spiritual fortitude in the changingness, in the randomness, in the unpredictability, in the chaos of life. Who's going to stand when things come at us from the side that were not expected? And it's going to be those who are anchored in the words of Jesus, those who have a relationship with Jesus. Have you all seen the TV show about hoarders? Hoarders, like people that buy tons of stuff and they fill up their houses. They just collect and collect and collect. They have like Walmart bags they've never unpacked until there's like this narrow path that helps them get to their chair. And then they have the narrow path that gets to their bed. Have you guys seen this? People just wall themselves in with stuff. I think if Solomon were here, he might compare people that spend their whole lives seeking pleasures and status and money and the bigger house and everything else that we spend our whole lives driving for as life hoarders. We work and we work and we work to fill up our, our life house with stuff. But all it is is constricting. It's actually stealing freedom. We don't have more, we have less. Because we've made everything in life important, nothing is important. And what does Jesus say? He says, those who are willing to lose their lives will find it. Those who are willing to lose their lives for my sake will find it. For what's the point of gaining the whole world but losing your soul? All of us treat life like life hoarders. And we come to, to Jesus like this, and Jesus says, will you open up your hands? Are you willing to surrender everything that you feel is so important? And he calls us to live open-handed towards him. If we're willing to surrender our lives and all the stuff that we think is so important, then we will receive from him life and freedom. So why trust in the sovereign God? Because life is unpredictable. So walk in wisdom. Don't walk alone. Have accountability partners and trust in the sovereign God. And fourth, be generous. We get this strange little illustration in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. And he says, cast your bread upon the waters and you will find it after many days. That's weird. I don't know what that means. Are we feeding the ducks? But then it keeps going. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. So what is he talking about? Let's interpret verse one through verse two. It's meaning give away what you have to as many as you can because you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And if life gets hard on you, how much more the people that don't have very much? Be generous. First John chapter three, 
Verse 16 through 18 says, By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So we live open-handed towards the people around us. We give ourselves away. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, that's that closed-handedness, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Be generous. Why should we be generous? Because life is unpredictable. So walk in wisdom. Don't walk alone. Trust in a God who's in control. And be generous. Recap. Life seems random and unpredictable. Who we are or what we do doesn't change that. And we can't predict the future. Our stressfully struggling to figure out life is just a grasp for control. God is in control. He sees what we don't see and he is always at work. God uses difficulties to shape us. He's more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. What we can do in a seemingly unpredictable life is to grow in wisdom, to find accountability, to trust our loving Father, and to be generous. So we've got two challenges for you. And you're going to have to dig a little bit into your heart. Make a list of three things in your life that you feel are out of your control. What are those things that this is what stresses you out? This is what keeps you up at night. This is why you feel like you have to take time during the day to breathe, but you still don't get even that time. What's always on your mind? What's distracting you? What are those things that you are desperately trying to get control of and don't have control? Name three of them and put it by your bed and every morning for the next seven days, wake up and pray about those things and surrender them to the Lord. Lord, I don't know how to deal with my parents' marriage that seems to be falling apart right now. I don't have the power. I'm scared. I'm, I don't know what to do. But Lord, you are in control. You are loving. And I'm gonna surrender this awful situation I have no power over to you. Lord, I don't know what to do with what the doctor told me about my loved one. I don't have control. Lord, I surrender this situation to you, the only one who sees the other side of the canvas. What are those things? Write three down and begin to pray about them every morning, surrendering them back to the Lord. And my second challenge is to ask yourself, who is your accountability person? Who is this person that is, who is checking on you, who's making sure that you are walking with the Lord, who's willing to kick you in the butt when you need it, who's encouraging you when you're down, and you're doing the same for them. Heavenly Father, I thank you that behind the loose ends, the knots, and the tangles of what we see, you are actively at work. And you have never left us. You've never forsaken us. Your hand is in our lives. And just like a potter with clay on the wheel, your hands never leave the clay. Your hands have never left our lives. And you are shaping us, forming us, molding us, sanctifying us. Lord, help us to surrender in the seasons that are painful. Help us to lean into them knowing that you've never left, that you're on the other side, that you see the bigger picture. Remind us that if we could see what you see, 
If we could know what you know, then we would choose what you have chosen. We love you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.